You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great, great to be here. Um, Hang on, I've just got to get uh, the uh, remote control out of my pocket and turn it on. Right. Yes, works. Excellent. This is an outline of where we're going to go today. Uh, I'm going to begin with a short historical perspective uh, and uh, then we'll talk about how the Bible is the sole source of authority, Um, talk about Matthew's Gospel and how Jesus fulfilled prophecy, uh, the importance of the Old Testament and a need to read our whole Bibles and then some tips on how to go about it. So that's what we're doing today. So I want you to um, just sit back, get comfortable, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, It's actually a true story. And it really is a true story. And it begins 500 years ago with a fellow called Albert of Brandenburg. Uh, Now, he was uh, the son of a nobleman, but he wasn't the eldest son. So when his father died, his older brother inherited the title, the lands, all the property and all the money. And so Albert needed a job. So what he did was he went to the bank and he borrowed a large sum of money. Oh, this is, that's Albert there. Uh, he borrowed a large sum of money and he bought himself the job of Archbishop of Mainz, which you could do in those days. If you had enough money, you could buy yourself a job. Later on, he got some more money and bought himself the job as a cardinal, but you could do that back then, 500 years ago, and that wasn't particularly, um, you know, it wasn't untoward, it was just normal. But of course, as you all know, if you borrow money from a bank, what does the bank want back? They want you to pay the money back. So here's Albert sitting in his uh, you know, bishop's seat and the bankers are saying, well, come on, when are you going to pay back the loan? So he needs money. Now, fortunately for Albert, this man, Pope Leo X, also needed money. He was going to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. You can go to Rome today and see this church. It took 100 years to build, so he didn't see the end of it but it's apparently like the biggest church in the world. Uh, And it's also very beautiful. So he needed some money to build this church. And so Albert said to him, why don't we get together, raise some money, and we'll split the proceeds. And the Pope said, that's good. I'll go ahead with this. You have my authority to do what you need. Now, they don't have op shops back then, and you know, just selling cakes on the side of the road wouldn't have got them enough money. So what they decided to do, or what uh, Albert decided to do, was to sell things called indulgences. Now, an indulgence was a piece of paper that said you were forgiven the consequences of your sin. So you could put some money into the box and the indulgence seller would give you a bit of paper and say you were forgiven. And that was great. Albert knew a guy called Tetzel, Johann Tetzel, and Tetzel went around Germany selling indulgences and raising money so that the Pope could build St Peter's Basilica and Albert could pay off his debt to the bankers. Problem was, Tetzel was, I think he was ahead of his time. If he lived today, he would have worked for a telemarketing company or, or he'd be, you know, spamming you on your internet, offering you, you know, some connection to a prince in Nigeria. He would see people and he would, and he would, he said, if you buy these indulgences, 
people who are in purgatory, you can get their sins forgiven and they can get out of purgatory. So, like, as Protestants, we don't believe in purgatory, but that was a thing they believed in 500 years ago. And, and he would say to, you know, some young fella, your mother is suffering in purgatory. She's burning, you know, and you don't care. If you really loved her, you would give me a few coins so she could get out of purgatory. Really manipulative, guilt trip type stuff. And so lots of people were, were buying these indulgences, not just for themselves, but for family members who were allegedly in purgatory. So enter this man, Martin Luther. He was, uh, he was a monk, but he was also a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg, and he was the pastor of the town church. And he discovered there were people in his church, poor people in his church, who were spending their life savings on these pieces of paper. And Luther had spent years studying the Bible. And so he knew that these pieces of paper were worthless. And he wanted to put a stop to it. So he wrote a letter to Albert. Remember Albert, the Archbishop, who started the whole thing? And in this letter, he had 95 topics of discussion, 95 theses, where he said, uh, you know, things like, you know, indulgences are not real and you can't do this and all that sort of stuff. Albert didn't particularly like the letter, but he didn't respond to Martin Luther. He forwarded it on to the Pope. And the Pope liked it even less because there were things in there which said, uh, why doesn't the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love? Good question, rather than for the sake of miserable money. So you can see this wouldn't have gone down too well. He also said, why doesn't the Pope, the richest man in the whole world, build this one basilica for St Peter out of his own money rather than with the money of poor believers. So you can see that um, this is a good way to get important people offside and that's what happened. So after a number of years, eventually the Pope got fed up with Martin Luther and excommunicated him and so Luther went off and started his own church which is still with us today, the Lutheran Church. But of course the most important thing that Luther did was to set an example to the rest of the world that, one, the Pope wasn't the ultimate authority, that, in fact, Scripture was the ultimate authority, and that everything needed to be tested against the Bible. And he encouraged... Other people were encouraged by his actions, and so we had you know, a whole lot of people springing up, starting new churches all over the place. And uh, this all happened. He sent his letter off on the 31st of October, 1517, so we're actually coming up to the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther sending off his 95 theses to Albert of Brandenburg. That's on Tuesday. So I had to talk about it because it's the 500th anniversary. If it was the 499th or the 501st, I wouldn't worry. But, you know, how often are you going to be around for the 500th anniversary of something, particularly something that has a big impact on us? Because we would not be here if it wasn't for this event. Uh, in the early 1800s in America, there were two Presbyterian ministers, Thomas and his son Alexander Campbell, and they had a similar sort of to-do. The church was telling them, we have the authority to make sure that you do this. And Thomas was saying, no, but the Bible says this. And so Thomas and Alexander left the Presbyterian church and started, well, they didn't intend to start a denomination, but they ended up starting what we now call the Churches of Christ. And one of their uh, uh, philosophies was that the Bible was the highest authority, which was what Martin Luther was saying, which was all the earlier reformers were saying, the Bible is the highest authority. 
And uh, there's Alexander and Thomas. Uh, Alexander's the son. He's the one on the left. Thomas' dad on the right. And one of their, their, I don't know if you say mottos or, or their ethos was that where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. That's, that's because that's what is in the ultimate authority, the Bible. So if the Bible tells you to do something or not to do something, that is the ultimate authority. If the Bible doesn't talk about it, then we just ignore it. We're not going to worry about that. We're not going to... You know, if, if you people want to, you know, wear flowers in your hair, the Bible doesn't say you can't do that, so we're not going to worry about that. So where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. It's one of the mottos of Churches of Christ. So one of the things that I really want to emphasise is how amazing and how radical a change it was for people to have access to the Bible. When, uh, when Martin Luther was saying the Bible is the ultimate authority, the only people who had access to the Bible were certain priests. Uh, and not, not, not all churches had Bibles, not all priests even read the Bible. Gutenberg had only just arrived on the scene and the very first thing he printed was a Bible, in Latin of course. So the average person couldn't read the Bible. Martin Luther translated the Bible into German so that Germans for the first time could read their Bible. This fellow, William Tyndale, did the same thing for the English. And he translated the Bible into English and uh, for his efforts he was executed by the King of England because he had done such a terrible thing by making the Bible accessible to the uh, common man. We have this Bible. We have it all over the place. You know, it's in the pews... If your house is anything like ours, you've probably got multiple copies at home. And, you know, nowadays, I've got about 50 different copies on that. It's all over the place. We do not realise just what a privilege it is that we have access to this thing, which is the ultimate authority in our lives. So, that's William Tyndale. So, this morning we have our Bible reading, uh, read very well by Nanette. Matthew 4, 12 to 15, and the key verse that I want, and I apologise because I forgot that when I bring my PowerPoint slides to this church, the, um, the background doesn't get faded out like it's supposed to. So it might be a little bit hard to read, but the key verse is um, this one here, verse 14, that Jesus has come to fulfil what was said to the prophet Isaiah. Because I want to talk about the way Jesus fulfils prophecy. Now, because we have this Bible, we can sit here, we can read it in English, we can talk about it amongst ourselves, we can, we can if I tell you something and you can get your Bible out and say, no, the Bible doesn't say that, he's wrong. You can do that. Before Martin Luther came along, the priest could get up and say anything he liked and you just had to accept it because you, there was no way you could challenge that. So Jesus... Um, Matthew is telling us that Jesus went to live in Capernaum so he could fulfil this uh, prophecy from Isaiah. Jesus fulfilled lots and lots of prophecies, not just this particular one here. There's a a website uh, that um, uh, lists 355 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, that's pretty, I mean, 
if I could uh, predict the weather for the next 355 days in a row, you would think that was pretty awesome. Because, you know, even the people with all the computers get it wrong. So if I was to get up here and say, it's going to be this, this, and this for the next 355 days, you would think that's amazing. Well, you know, the weather is not that hard to predict, particularly here in Queensland, because it's either, you know, hot or raining or both. But Jesus fulfilled 355 prophecies. Some of these prophecies, I have to confess, are fairly generic, like he's going to be a descendant of Isaac. Well, you know, just about any Jew in Jesus' time could have said that. But others are amazingly precise. Psalm 22 talks about, uh, it's a prophecy of the coming Messiah, and it talks about how his hands and feet are going to be pierced, how people are going to cast lots for his clothing, how he's going to be thirsty, how there are going to be people surrounding him, mocking him. When you read this, it's almost like someone has sat there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and written an account of it. Now, the amazing thing is, and I really want to stress just how amazing this is, this was written hundreds and hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented. You know, this, the Psalms were written, you know, at the time of David, and the Romans didn't turn up until hundreds and hundreds of years later. So here is a prediction of crucifixion that is an, an amazingly accurate account of what happened to Jesus and it was written centuries before Christ was even born. So you see some of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are just so specific and so amazing that you sort of think how could that possibly be just you know, some sort of fluke. There's a guy called um, Peter Stoner um, he was a mathematician. He died in 1980. So, but he was born in 1888, so he had a long life. And uh, he was a, a mathematician, as I said, and he was an expert on statistics. And so he selected eight prophecies that, um, uh, about Jesus, and he calculated the odds. So here are the eight prophecies that he picked. He picked the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, that, uh, which is, of course, we know happened. A messenger will prepare, prepare the way for the Messiah. That's John the Baptist. Uh, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. And uh, that's, uh, that happened. And the Messiah will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. The Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The betrayer mon money will be used to purchase a potter's field. And the Messiah will remain silent while he is afflicted and he will die by having his hands and feet pierced. All of those were prophecies that he selected, eight prophecies that he felt Jesus definitely fulfilled, and he worked out the odds. Now, he worked out that that was 1 by 10 to the power of 17, or 1 is to 1 with a whole lot of zeros after it, which, if you're anything like me, doesn't mean very much, because, well, okay, what? But um, he then transferred that into a little analogy, which was an American one, but I've Australianized it, he used Texas, but I'm going to use New South Wales. And, uh, and because uh, New South Wales, we know the size of Texas and New South Wales, just a matter of ratios. So if you got New South Wales and you filled it with 50 cent coins to the depth of one metre, so you think that's 800,000 square kilometres, New South Wales, to a depth of one metre, like with uh, 50 cent pieces, and one of those 50 cent pieces had a cross on it. So you mix them all up, 
Then you got Steve and you blindfolded him and you let him loose in New South Wales and you said, Steve, take your time. When you're ready, pick up one coin. And if he, by some massive fluke, picked up the one coin that had been marked with a cross, he would have beaten those odds of 1 is 10 to 17. So that's just how, that's just those eight prophecies. We already know Jesus has done over 300 prophecies. So Stoner said, what if it was 16 prophecies? If it was 16 prophecies, the number of 50 cent pieces you would need would form a solid ball, the diameter of which would be 30 times the distance from the sun to the earth. And you would have to find in that solid ball one coin marked with a cross. Jesus didn't do 16 prophecies. He didn't do 160. He's fulfilled 300. The odds on that are so astronomical that it would be impossible for anybody other than the Son of God to fulfill those prophecies. So the prophecies... Matthew talks about, um, uh, in his Gospel, he mentions... He says often, it is written... Or he says, um, this was to fulfill. Those are two things that he says. All up, there's about 34 times that Matthew quotes the Old Testament as a, a fulfilled prophecy. And there's about 70 times where he refers indirectly to it. So in Matthew's Gospel, there are many, many references to Jesus fulfilling prophecies. Uh, or prophecies being fulfilled. And Matthew does this because... He is writing principally to a bunch of Jews. And so he's using the Old Testament to support the argument that he's making that Jesus is the Messiah and that the things that Jesus taught must therefore be listened to and be given credence because he has fulfilled all these prophecies. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we need to pay attention to. So Matthew often refers to the Old Testament. And in fact, he's not alone on that because throughout the whole of the New Testament, there is a reference to there's about nearly 1,000 references to the Old Testament. And when, the, when the, uh, the apostles, when they're writing and they talk about uh, the inspiration of Scripture and so on, or when they mention Scripture in anywhere, they're not talking about the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament. So what does all this mean for us? I was once in a meeting where a presenter asked, what was the first miracle that Jesus did? And most of us said, oh, we know that. And you probably know that too. The first miracle was turning the water into wine at Cana. That's what we said. Uh, uh -uh, Wrong answer. Because if you look at John, he doesn't say it was Jesus' first miracle. He says, this miracle was the first sign. And you read through John's Gospel, and there's a whole bunch of signs. So what was Jesus' first miracle? How about this? John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and we know that later on, John says the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So that's just another way of saying Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. So the first miracle of Jesus was making everything just in case you think that I'm sort of misinterpreting that one, how about Colossians 1.16? For in him all things were created. All things were created through him. So Jesus' first miracle was the creation of everything. You can check this out. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, 
Let us make man in our image. So who's the us that God is talking about? He hasn't made man yet. So that's the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is right there at the very beginning. All things were created through him. And how do we know that? Because it's in the Old Testament. And what's the part of the Bible that most of us ignore? Most of us ignore the Old Testament. Here's another clue that we're familiar with. Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, and, uh, and Cleopas and his friend are saying, oh, you know, it's such a terrible thing. We thought Jesus was the Messiah, but he's been executed. And, oh, you know. and Jesus said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, the first five books, and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. The Old Testament is full of Jesus. When I first started my theological studies, one of our lecturers said, people say the the Bible is the inspired word of God, but you can tell that most people only think some parts of it are inspired. And, uh, you know, we're sort of sitting there puzzling. You can tell this by looking at the edges of their Bibles. Because if you look at the edges of the Bible... Some of the pages are really dirty and some of them are really clean. Here's a picture of my Bible at that time. Now, I don't know if you can sort of make it out, but can you see the layer just through there? Just there? That's where the New Testament starts. Look at how clean the Old Testament is compared to the New Testament. If you really get up close, you can sort of see there's a bit of a dark strip there. That's the Psalms. So obviously, as far as according to this lecturer's theory, the only bits I thought were inspired were most of the New Testament and little bits of the Old. But the reality is that all of Scripture is inspired by God. Um, And, you know, you can go through... Well, you can go on the internet and do it the easy way and Google, you know, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Well, you can go through and read and ask yourself questions about the Bible... In, uh, in Genesis, like you can go through, Jesus is represented in every book of the Bible in some way or another. Uh, it might be directly. There's um, a, a, a person who's mentioned frequently in the Old Testament called the Angel of the Lord. Uh, first time he's mentioned is in Genesis 16 verse 10 uh, where he meets Hagar in the wilderness and the angel says to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Now, this is the angel saying he is going to do that. He doesn't say God's going to do it. He says, I will do that. Now, angels are just messengers. So, you know, an angel can't do anything on its own. So, in this case, the angel of the Lord is is saying, I am going to create life. And Hagar says, a couple of verses later... He gave, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. So if you go through the Old Testament looking for the angel of the Lord, you'll see he does all sorts of things like this. Uh, you know, it, people worship him and he accepts the worship. He does, in, uh, in, the, in uh, Revelation, where John um, offers to worship this angel, the angel says, stop, I'm just a servant like you. But throughout the Bible, when people offer the angel of the Lord worship, he just accepts it and takes it as right and proper. And most, there are, there's a really good argument that I accept 
is that this is Jesus before the incarnation. This is the third member of the Trinity, the Son of God, before he became flesh and dwelt among us. So there are, the, there, are, there are those sorts of things. But then there are other things in the Old Testament. Um, I'll forget that. So, ah, all right. So, for example, in Exodus, uh, there's the Passover is described in the Exodus. And you remember the Passover? That's where they put blood of the lamb on the, door, on the lintel and this bad guy passes over them and nobody dies. But the Passover is about the sacrifice of lambs. And then you jump to the New Testament. And who is a sacrificial lamb in the New Testament? It's Jesus. So the Passover sort of prefigures what Jesus is going to do for us. You know, in Leviticus, they set up the high priest uh, and, and they set up the priesthood. But who is our high priest? It's Jesus. So these things in the Old Testament are prefiguring what is going to happen in the New with Jesus. So... I guess what I'm trying to emphasise is that don't be like me and have a nice, clean Old Testament and a well-used New Testament. Have a well-used all of the Bible. Have both the Old and the New, something that you're dipping into regularly to see what God is trying to say to you. You know, if Matthew had never read the Bible, never read the Old Testament, and Jesus had rocked up, How would he know that Jesus was fulfilling scripture when he went off to live in Capernaum? How would he know that Jesus was fulfilling scripture when he rode a donkey into town? He wouldn't. You know, today, biblical literacy is almost non-existent outside the churches. And sadly, even within churches, it's not very high. So it's really important for us to not make that mistake, to be biblically literate so that we can we can know what is, uh, what is the highest authority, what we have to do, what is the things that are instructed to us to do and not do. Otherwise, we will fall into the trap of doing and not doing what society tells us is okay. And if society tells us, you know, thing X is okay, if we are biblically illiterate, we will say, yeah, let's do that, everybody else is doing it. But we need to be biblically literate people so we know what is right and what is wrong. So, every Old Testament book has something to say about Jesus. Even, I read one account, the book of Esther. Now, if you know anything about the book of Esther, you know that it doesn't mention the word God anywhere in there. So how does the book of Esther remind us of Jesus? What does Esther do? She goes before the king and she intercedes for her people. What does Jesus do? Jesus in Romans 8.34 says that he is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Even the book of Esther can bring to mind something about Jesus Christ for us. So we, like the reformers, believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's the ultimate authority for all we do. We need to actually live that out in our life. There's nothing wrong with spending your time doing secular things, nothing wrong with watching television, all that. But if we do, that's all we're doing. If we're not loading up on what the Bible has to say to us, then we're not really acting out what we say that we believe. So I've got five or six points now just to give you some advice 
on how to get into the habit of reading your Bible and getting the most you can out of it. So the first one is find an easy-to-read version of the Bible. You know, as I said, we are blessed to have the Bible in English. In fact, we are so blessed that there are literally dozens and dozens of different translations and you can find one that will meet your need. I would recommend, if you are not sort of accustomed to reading the Bible, to find an easy-to-read version. Because there's no good, like, having a version on the bookshelf that is full of complicated and difficult language and you're not reading it at all. What's the point? You're much better off having a, a, an easy-to-read, maybe not as good a translation, but an easy-to-read version that you're going to read than one that you're not going to read. So there are different translations. There are literal translations. Uh, the King James Version is a literal translation. It's word-for-word -word translation. Uh, of those ones, the latest is the English Standard Version, and I personally like that very much. But there, as well as literal translations, there are dynamic equivalents where they take the thought behind the text and translate that. So where in the, in the Hebrew it talks about, you know, being upset in your bowels, that wasn't some sort of medical condition, that was actually the way you were thinking because they thought that was where your, your thoughts were in your stomach. So the, they don't translate that, they talk about it being in your heart. So uh, a dynamic equivalence is a, that sort of a translation. And then a paraphrase is one where they've just got an easy to read uh, idea about what was being said. Now, if you've never read a Bible before, you might want to start with a paraphrase because that would make it easy for you to read and understand. But it's not very good to try and actually study what is going on. The dynamic equivalence one, that's pretty good and you probably get a really good idea. And the danger though in the dynamic equivalence is that the translator is, is imposing his bias on what is being um, translated. And he might be biased in a particular way because he's putting in what he's, he thinks is the idea behind a text. Whereas a literal one uh, gives you a really good word-for-word -word, uh, uh, um, translation, but can often be really difficult to understand because words and concepts are not translated into easily understandable language. So here's a, com a comparison of Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. The King James says, And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's not too bad, but sometimes in the King James, it doesn't have just saith, it has a whole lot of other eth-ending words too, and, um, and sometimes they're not so easy to follow. The ESV, which is, another, which is a more modern literal translation, the one that I said I liked, and he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Much easier. The NIV says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So that gives you a bit more idea about what this fishers of men thing is about. The New Living Translation says, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. So these, are, these two are the dynamic equivalents. Those two are more literal. And this is a paraphrase. The message says, come with me, I'll make a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to fish for men and women, not perch and bass. So the bottom must have dropped off there. So you can see fishing for perch and bass, that's really different to being a fisher of men. 
but if you are just beginning to read, that might make it more uh, easy to understand. So, find an easy version of the Bible to read. This is important. You don't have to start at the beginning. A lot of people start at Genesis chapter 1, and they, by the time they get through to Leviticus, they just think, this is really killing me. You don't have to do that. You, the Bible is not a book like an other ordinary book. It's actually 66 books. It's like a library. And if you walked into the library, you wouldn't start at, you know, triple A and pull that first book out of the shelf. You would sort of look, what am I interested in? Oh, I'll read that one. So of the 66 books, find one you're interested in. And you don't have to sit down and smash yourself reading the whole book at once. Just read a little bit. So pick the Bible, pick a book of the Bible and work your way through it. But you don't have to, you know, overload yourself. Just read a small part, sit there and think about it. When you read uh, a little bit every day, pretty soon you get into the habit. And once you're in the habit of anything, it's, it just becomes automatic and you keep doing it. Importantly, ask God to uh, give you wisdom and insight. Pray before you begin. Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. So pray, ask God's Holy Spirit to help you see and discern what you're reading. And ask yourself two questions. Ask yourself, what does this say to me? What is this saying? You know, is, is this a, a promise? Is this something in which I uh, have to, to uh, modify my behaviour? What does it teach me about God? No doubt, as you read, and if you're reading small bits at a time, and you're reading slowly, and you're asking yourselves a question about it, you will come across a bit that you think, wow, that's really interesting. So have a pencil and paper with you so you can take some notes. And if you read like half a chapter one, one day, and you come across a verse, uh, John 3.16, for example, you say, wow, that's really interesting. Write it down on a bit of paper and carry it with you for the rest of the day. Take it out and look at it. By the end of the day, you'll have probably memorised it. And then do it again the next day with a different verse. The other important thing about having a pencil and paper to take notes is if you're reading your Bible and you think, oh, I've got to go and buy milk, you can write that down without getting distracted. <laughs> so, there are some things to help you get started with reading your Bible. Read the whole Bible. You don't have to do it in one year. If you read one chapter a day, you probably do the whole thing in three years. You know, just take your time, work your way through it, and in the Old Testament, look for what it's telling you about Jesus Christ. So to recap, a bit of a historical perspective because it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Martin Luther's thesis started the Reformation, which ultimately led to churches like the Churches of Christ. The Bible alone is the sole source of authority. It doesn't matter what I get up and say, what Steve or Neil or anybody else gets up and says... If, we, if what we say does not line up with what the Bible says, then we've made a mistake. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy left, right and centre. The Old Testament was important to him, to the apostles, and should be important to us. And so there is a need for us to read the whole Bible and not just have that end one quarter of our Bible dirty on our pages, but to make the whole lot used. 
and I've given you some tips on how to go about doing that. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge your love for us and your many blessings, including the privilege of having our own personal copies of the Bible in a language we can understand. And Lord, we are sorry for neglecting your word and not taking time to hear the message you have for us. Thank you that we have the Bible to read and we ask that your Holy Spirit guide and direct us as we read and feed on the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.